Welcome to The Alex Tremble Show, where we share the strategies and secrets you need to know in order to successfully increase your influence, build strategic networks, and advance in your career. An award-winning speaker, author, and leadership coach, Alex brings executive leaders from across the world to share their inspirational stories and insights to help you become an exceptional public servant while also reaching your career goals. Without further ado, here's your host, Alex D. Tremble. Hello, everyone. This is Alex Trimble again from GPS Leadership Solutions, and I'm so excited to be here with a good friend of mine, um, Mike Stollard. He is, um, I want to say, an expert in the world of connecting and connection. And so what I'm hoping that um, is that Mike will share some of the highlights from his new book, as well as just some, has some really great conversation today. Um, Mike, how are you doing today? I'm well, Alex. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to throw a curveball at you just starting off. Um, you mentioned a study on neuropsychology um, that you and I were just talking off camera. Do you mind kind of just talking a little bit about that in the beginning? Oh, sure. I was having a conversation with Ted George, who is a a principal investigator and neuroscientist, psychiatrist, MD at uh, the National Institutes of Health. And he's one person I frequently go to. He wrote a great book about... um, Uh, If you look it up on Amazon, it's about just understanding how our minds work. And one of the things Ted pointed out was during the, during the pandemic, our, our minds, our subconscious mind picks up that something has changed. You know, we're around people less, we're more, more socially isolated and the mind can perceive that as a threat, which means we're, our brain is processing more in the amygdala where we process threats and less in the prefrontal cortex where we really, uh, you know, language, uh, rational thought, we're more likely to act rationally when we're processing the prefrontal cortex. So there are a couple of consequences of that, that um, the other neuroscientists uh, believe as well. Number one, that we're uh, going to be more tired these days when our body is processing and, and sensing that we're threatened in some way. It's, we're hypervigilant, we don't sleep as well. The a second effect is that we um, don't, we're not able to think as clearly because the clear thinking comes from the prefrontal cortex. And so we tend to simplify things. And you really see that in the political debate today. People will kind of lock in a, on a couple of issues. It almost seems like when you try to point out additional things, they should think about additional perspectives that, you know, they're, they, they're not uh, listening. They're not able to hear you. They're just locked into a couple of things. And that, that is symptomatic of processing in the amygdala. They're feeling threatened in this environment. I mean, that, I think that the, 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 the thing that pops in my mind immediately is fight or flight, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not, and we're in that situation. We are not trying to um, act smart, actually become dumber in those situations, our body and our mind immediately transitions everything to keeping us safe, getting us away from whatever may be harming us or we perceive as harming us, right? Um, so it makes so much sense that, you know, those bits of information, those small chunks of information that we latch onto, and we're not really, our, our minds aren't really open to new additional information. Right. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. We're just, you know, we, we lock in on a couple of things that we see as relevant and the rest is just hard for us to hear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, so 
if I can ask that, you know, you just wrote the book, um, Connection Culture. How does, and if does that, uh, that, 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 that thought, that idea we were just talking about, does that connect anything to your book, uh, The Connection Culture? Well, it does, Alex. When you look at, we have a convergence of three factors in the present environment. Number one, um, before 2020, we were already facing an epidemic of loneliness. The most recent research came out from Cigna. They found that 61% of Americans tested out as lonely. That's, you know, three in five people. And the consequences of that are that we're um, just... You know, our, our bodies in that, as we talked about in processing in the amygdala, but we also won't feel as well when we feel threatened. Our body, we're, we're wired for connection and when we don't have it, um, we're more likely to not feel well. Uh, the other thing is just the social or physical separation that's required during the pandemic is increasing social isolation. So that also has an impact on us. And then you just have uh, stress is very high. Stress was high before the pandemic, and you know, a number of reasons. Uh, people are concerned about their health, they're concerned about the economy, you have the divisive political climate, and you have other factors, you know, hurricanes, uh, fires out west, tornadoes, uh, you know, bad weather in Cedar Rapids. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. There are a lot of stressors out there today. And so research shows that after the pandemic, stress has gone up even higher. And so that convergence of three factors means that people are more likely to be in a state of chronic stress response. And that makes them vulnerable to anxiety, depression, addiction, and suicide. The best way to cope with the convergence of factors is connection. Connection helps uh, calm our nervous system. It helps maintain our brain's processing in the uh, cortex where we make rational, so we'll make better decisions and there are a host of other benefits from connection. So it's very relevant today. Well, <laughs> I'm going to ask a, a slightly facetious question, but I'm not, I'm, I'm confused. I'm confused. We are more connected than we've ever been, right? We have Facebook, you know, I have like a 500,000 friends. What are you talking about? How are we not connected? Well, um, there's, you know, networked, I would say, and then there's true, when I use the term connection, it really is this bond that we have with other people that calms us. Um, it's, you know, there is a, uh, getting to know each other better, um, where we really feel safe with someone and they help us process our life, uh, help us talk through the challenges we face in life. And that, you know, that conversation calms our nervous system and also helps us make better decisions. So um, connection is deeper than just um, the number of contacts we have on Facebook or LinkedIn. Um, it really is those closer relationships that are key for us to feel supported. And the research shows, and I find this really interesting, Alex, that it can't just be one way. You can't just receive that support. It has to go both ways. And when it goes both ways, where I have your back and you have my back and I really care about you as a friend, that's when that true connection happens where we feel safer. And that helps us. Yeah. We're able to deal with more stress in our lives because the connection is helping ground our body so that we perform better. And it, it, we have better emotional and physical health. I'm not sure if this is, you know, from a conversation you and I had, I think I remember having a conversation on that topic about how um, maybe we um, are more comfortable taking risk or, we're more comfortable, you know, in life if we know we have someone 
who is, is in our corner. You know, um, I think I, I saw something about relationships. Even if, oh, it was a Harvard study um, that was done on, it was like the longest Harvard study ever done. They mm-hmm. talked about the importance of relationships. And they said, right. even in those, um, those marriages where the husband and wife, you know, argued back and forth, mm-hmm. um, if they both knew that they had each other's back when things got rough, they still lived longer. They still were healthier, um, even with those, art, those bits of arguing. Right. Yeah. And that makes sense with just the science I talked about, doesn't it? That when we have that supportive relationship, um, you know, just some other research comes to mind. I think of John Gottman's research. He, st- he was a psychology professor at the University of Washington. He studied marriages and he found that what they did is they filmed uh, married couples and then they broke down their uh, words, their behaviors into were they positive, were they connecting people, or were they negative and you know, so pushing people away from one another. And what they found was when the positivity ratio was five to one or greater, there was a high probability the relationship was together, would remain. But if it fell below that five to one, Alex, there was a high probability it wouldn't. It just shows how sensitive we are to the negative and that we need overwhelmingly positive social environment to really stay connected to people. So um, this takes us a little bit off topic. Uh, I remember having a conversation with a monk a few years back about human, um, human behavior, natural, um, our natural inclinations. And we were talking about how just, you know, historically, um, you know, in order to live, humans had to be very aware of bad things, right? If something hurt you, if something got you sick, something could have killed you, you had to pay attention to it because you weren't going to live if you didn't, mm-hmm. right? And positive things were nice to haves. I mean, you like them, but, you know, those things are very easy to forget. And so what we talked about is, um, is that people have to be very cognizant of you know, just how much positive needs to be in their life. Because if they, if they're only, one, if they're only focusing on the negative, it's really easy to feel down all the time. Um, but two, if you can change your mindset to see, I think if you change your mindset to see those quote unquote negatives as positives, as opportunities, as learning opportunities, um, you will, I think, be happier and more likely to try new things mm-hmm. moving forward. And I know kind of kind of sideways on this, but um, is this the, the, the concept of, I think not, I don't think a lot of people realize just how natural it is to think negative. Mm-hmm. Um, and the research you're talking about kind of, I think, underscores it. Right. And then it, that makes me think of just, you know, the gratitude journals and there's an old hymn, uh, count your blessings, <laughs> name them one by one. And research shows that that really makes a difference, you know, to take the time to journal, to write down three positive things about your life every day, or there are actually gratitude apps now that you can use. And Mm -hmm. I find when I'm feeling stressed out or just, you know, my schedule is super crazy busy, then um, taking the time just to say, oh, I'm really thankful for my wife, Katie, and my daughter's doing well, and my friends, and it definitely makes a, a difference. So yeah, what you're saying just is so true and science really backs it up. So I, I, I was actually just about to ask you if you could dive into that a little more, that, that how-to. Um, so I'm, I'll share mine and then I'd like to share, you know, just hear your ideas and kind of uh, springboard off of that. So I, I'm not sure what happened, like maybe 
you know, five, six years ago, um, I, I realized I was giving a speech and I, as I was trying to, I was writing the speech first, obviously. Um, and I realized that you know, all these wonderful things in my life that have happened to me, um, everyone sees all those wonderful things, right? And, you know, even I see those wonderful things, but, you know, I think people forget, people don't, one, people from the outside don't see all the negative that happened prior to that. Um, but I don't know what, something made me think about it. And I was like, you know, really, if, if my biological father wouldn't have left me uh, when I was a couple days old, um, I, I still remember spending all the way up until my sophomore year of college doing everything I can. Like I, I end up getting, you know, I was all CIF and the football team, all LA Times, like all these different awards, um, gotten the scholarship, uh, uh, scholarship to go to f- play football in college. Like I did all these things. I worked so hard because I was trying to um, hopefully make him want to be around me, right? Um, but I realized that that wouldn't have happened if he wouldn't have left, then maybe I wouldn't have worked as hard and maybe I wouldn't be where I am. I wouldn't ha- then I wouldn't have my wife if I wouldn't have went to the specific college I went to. Um, I wouldn't have my siblings who I love so much. Mm-hmm. And I, it just, it, it made me think that every time I've done something great in my life, mm-hmm. I can tie it back to something that I didn't think was positive and if that wouldn't have happened, it wouldn't make me who I am today. So I wouldn't have been able to, to, to experience this, this, this happiness. I think that's how I, I'm able to transition those, those negative times to positive times because um, I literally say, okay, this is going to help me somewhere else. And I now have a story I can tell someone else to mentor them, to coach them, um, to make someone else's life happier. Um, so what, what are your thoughts? And what do you, what do you, how do you, transition those those negative times in, in our lives well it's interesting you say that because just in interviews i've done with ceos and and uh you know very successful leaders oftentimes i find it's the adversity they've faced in life that's really had a profoundly positive effect you know you wouldn't wish this on them but they come out of it stronger uh humbler uh, more grateful people i think they come out of it Alex, better connectors. They connect more with people. They care more about relationships. It really has a profound effect on them. Sometimes it's a life-threatening illness. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's losing a loved one. Um, it, you know, it's just, there are a number of things. I think of Jim Senegal, who was the um, co-founder of Costco. And he told me about growing up in Pittsburgh and his dad was a a steel factory worker and a coal miner, and he was injured and he could no longer be in those occupations. And it was scary because they had very little cushion to live any to live on. And, you know, it was a, it was a frightening time for the family, but their dad got involved in a heating, ventilation, air conditioning business um, that he developed. And, Anyway, the family made it through. They pulled together and um, it just had an effect on Jim. He really cares for people. You see that in Costco's culture today. Um, their, their motto is do the right thing, which means we obey the law. We take care of our members. We take care of our employees. We respect our suppliers and we reward our shareholders. So, you know, they pay better than their competitors. They have 95% in, uh, annual employee retention. Mm-hmm. 
So it's interesting to go back in these stories, but oftentimes you find those periods of adversity that really you wouldn't wish on anyone because they're yeah. painful times. And yet they come out of that stronger, better leaders, better able to connect with people who want to follow them because of that connection. So um, <laughs> there's so many questions I want to ask you. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first I will say is you've now, you've met that phenomenal leader. Um, you've met um, uh, the, the creator of Hamilton, right? You've met creator. Well, we, in our new book, which we're going to give you a sample chapter so you can share with your listeners. Um, we start out with the story of Lin-Manuel Miranda, Tom Cale, and the other uh, core collaborators who created the hit musical Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And we were not able to interview them. We're still hoping that we can do that. But there was a lot. I mean, we looked at everything that was available on them. And what we really found was there is a story of leaders who, uh, Lynn manuel and Tom Cale in particular, who really care about people, who care about, um, you know, they're able to love people easily. Um, especially Lynn manuel Miranda, we go deeper. There's a lot more published about him than about Tom Cale, including uh, Lynn's childhood. And I think people would be really inspired by the story just to see Lynn growing up in the Washington Heights area of uh, Manhattan, um, just the impact that that had on him and his ability to care, or his, just how much he cares for people. And you see that in Tom Cale too, the director. He uh, talks about, um, he refuses to work with people who are not kind. And you know, the show business can have some pretty big personalities, mm-hmm. but it's amazing just the connection among these four key collaborators and how it's produced um, uh, just a number of things that have been wildly successful with Hamilton being the most visible, but you also have uh, in the Heights and just other things that they've done together. So it's a great story that people will love. Well, I guess what, what I wanted to, what I wanted to ask you is how do you, and again, without giving away, you know, the premise of your book, um, what are like the, the big high level, ideas in regards to building connection? Well, the, the high, very high level ideas are number one, that um, there are three types of relational cultures. You can think of cultures as, you know, leaders are intentional about tasks and because we're paid to get things done. But the very best leaders are intentional about tasks and making sure tasks are performed with excellence. And also they develop relationship excellence. And it's that combination that produces uh, performing at a high level for a sustained period of time. And then to really decode cultures, we look at three things. Number one, in the group, what are their predominant attitudes? You know, how do they, what are their mindsets? What are, secondly, what language do they use? And then third, what are their actions? And then you can look at each of those and, and think about do those attitudes, language, and behaviors, do they connect people, draw them closer together, or did they push them apart? And what you find in these teams and leaders that are wildly successful is those attitudes, language, and behavior draw people together. They connect them. And as we got deeper into our research, Alex, we found that there are three types of relational cultures. There's the culture of connection, like Lin-Manuel Miranda, Tom Cale, and the collaborators of Hamilton definitely have. Then secondly, there are two types of cultures that are disconnecting. One is the culture of control. 
That's where a leader with, and those with power, control, influence status, they rule over everyone else. And the rest of the people can't give their best performance when they don't feel connected to the leadership, to the organization, to the team. Mm -hmm. They feel like they're just means to an end rather than uh, treated as individuals and valued as individuals. And then um, the next culture is a culture that has a lot of busyness. We call it a culture of indifference because it's people are indifferent to human needs and indifferent to relationships. They're just focused on getting things done, but they're not developing relationship excellence. And over time, that lack of connection, it, you know, people, we need connection. And without that, we can't give our best performance. And so you have those three cultures. And then as we dug deeper into a culture of connection, we found that there were three elements that number one leaders, they cast, they communicated a vision that was inspiring and united people. Second, they valued people as individuals and didn't think or treat them as means to an end. And then third, they gave people a voice in matters that were important to them. Doesn't mean they gave them a vote, but they at least they wanted to hear people's opinions and ideas because they had humility. Yeah. They knew that tapping more opinions and ideas would help them make the best decisions. Mm-hmm. So those three th- factors, vision, value, voice, created connection that helped the group th- thrive. That's true of Costco. It's true of the group that, um, that uh, created Hamilton. It's true of, in the book, we have Oprah Winfrey, we have uh, Admiral Vern Clark, the second longest serving chief of the U.S. Navy. We have Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors. I mean, Steph Curry is a uber connector. He's unbelievable. And he's such an inspiring leader of that team. Uh, so we're, we love, uh, you know, there's another story I want to mention is Angela Merkel. You know, this is, she's been the chancellor of Germany for, I think, 15 years now. So an extremely long time, you know, definitely the most respected leader in Europe, if not the world. And um, she can seem very emotionally detached. She's a scientist by training, but she is a connector when you look deeper at her relationships. And um, we really tell her story, including her childhood. And you, see through her childhood how her values were shaped and how she became such a great leader. So I love digging deep into leaders' stories to understand why are they so good at developing task excellence and relationship excellence that fuels their long-term success. Thank you for tuning in to The Alex Tremble Show. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. The results are in. Research has found that networking is one of the four skills absolutely required to successfully advance in your career. However, when asked, most government employees state that they don't network because they believe that networking is for extroverts and for people who care more about their own careers than the organization's mission. But what if there was a way to ethically network without looking self-absorbed and being a super extrovert? Well, there is. Alex Tremble has created a seven-week online networking course specifically designed to give ambitious leaders like yourself the skills needed to become a strategic networker. This course uses time-tested and research-backed strategies to help you identify, build, and maintain critical relationships with influential leaders. Visit alextremble.com courses networking to learn more about his networking model today. Use the discount code podcastfamily on the checkout screen to receive a 20% discount. Don't delay. Enroll today at alextremble.com courses networking.
And now back to The Alex Tremble Show with your host, Alex Tremble. Well, so I'm going to make, again, keep making me want to ask a bunch of questions. Um, but the first thing I want to point out really quickly for everyone who's listening and, and, and watching is it sounds like you don't need to be some boisterous, super extroverted individual to be effective at creating connection. That, that's, what I'm, that's what I think I'm hearing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, yeah, let me just stop there. That, that's true. I think, you know, oftentimes uh, these leaders are not, partic- some of them are not particularly charismatic. Now, some of them are <laughs> definitely, Lin-Manuel Miranda is definitely, he has a charisma about him, um, but some are not. And yet they're, they're very effective at connecting with people and people know that they care about them as individuals. And that makes a big difference. See, I, I, I wanted to, I, I love putting a pin in that, that particular um, thought because I, I think there is a, a general thought within our society, within movies and everything we watch, that in order to be effective at creating connections, you need to have a particular type of personality. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually on a phone call with a, a potential client of mine just yesterday, and she was sharing how... Um, she's not sure if she would be good at connecting with people and building relationships um, because I don't like going out and hanging out with people. Um, and I was like, Oh, well that, that, that has nothing to do with whether you can be good at this or not. Um, and you know, what, what I talk about in my trainings, which, you know, I love, I love inter- I wanted to interview you so bad because I feel like we are two sides of the coin. So, Whereas a lot of my stuff focuses on strategic relationship building. So again, identifying those individuals who to have connections with, how to initially build those relationships and so on and so forth. I think you then have to also have that other side of it, which is remaining, uh, keeping, keeping those connections. Um, and so I, I just, I, I really wanted to interview you. So thank you for allowing me to do this. Um, I, I almost actually forgot where I was going with this, but to say, um, it's important for people to realize that how you go about building connections, relationships with people, um, there is no standard ABC. Like this is how you do it. it, it it's all, I think, unique to who you are and how you best function. Is, is, is that, would that be fair yeah, to say? I, well, one of the things we've been doing this for, um, I left Wall Street almost 20 years ago when I saw mergers were not working well, that four out of five mergers did not create economic value. And oftentimes it was because the merged entities didn't connect after the deal was done and it sabotaged their performance. And so since that time, Alex, we have been um, studying these teams and organizations. I remember one of our first clients was the NASA Johnson space center. And we did work down there for several years. And, um, we, it was at that time that we started identifying the attitudes, language, and behavior that was connecting. And um, what's fascinating is to see that uh, people connect in different ways. The ways that Admiral Vern Clark connected with uh, enlisted sailors so that first-term reenlistment went from under 20% to almost 60% in 18 months is going to be different than the way Lynn manuel Miranda and Tom Kale create a connection culture for the team that developed Hamilton. So there are differences, and yet there are some similarities too. And that's what we've tried to study is how, we, what our desire is to help leaders um, understand the breadth of attitudes, languages, uses of language and behavior that connect. 
and then really shape their own ways that are the most relevant and effective in their context and the most relevant with who they are personally, which very much gets to what you just said. Well, look, if anyone hasn't, hasn't gotten the, the subtle hints that I've been giving, um, buy his book. <laughs> I'll just say that. Um, if you are interested in understanding the different levels of relationships or connection there are, and then how to, again, identify your unique path to, to, to building those connections, it's, you know, this is a book that you need to read. Um, I, and I, I've been blessed to have known uh, Mike through a few, a couple years, maybe, uh-huh. um, yeah. via a mutual friend, right. Kitty, who, who was a phenomenal connector. Yeah. So, <laughs> connector. Um, so that, that's the first point, you know, look, re- read his book. Um, I, I promise you, this is going to be a great value add. Um, then the second thing is, it, as you were, you were talking about the uniqueness, it made me think of a, a former client of mine. Um, again, really quiet guy, introverted guy. I mean, he had a very interesting conversation um, about, you know, his dislike for hanging out with people and how it was actually starting to negatively impact his career um, and his uh, and his uh, marriage, actually, because uh, his wife wanted to go out and hang out with the friends and he never wanted to go out. And so there, there, there was a clash there. Um, when him and I talked about how he could go about building relationships and strategic connections, um, you know, he was like, well, I don't want to go. I don't want to do this. I'm gonna, look, what do you enjoy doing? Mm-hmm. I want to be at home. Um, watching the History Channel, drinking scotch. I said, you, you like scotch? Said, I love scotch. You like the History Channel? Yeah. Why don't you invite people over? He's like, what? Just invite them over to watch, you know, History Channel with you and drink some scotch. I can do that? That's, that's networking? Yeah. <laughs> and and he, he was, comp- his mindset on networking, a complete 180. Again, it's because he thought as so many people believe that the only way to build connections is this particular way. And if they don't like that, then they're just, they're, they're uh, what's so a sentence to a life without connections. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's so important that you're helping them do that. I think to, you know, this has a real impact on our careers in terms of just, you know, oftentimes our best career opportunities come through these connections that we have outside of work or in work even. And um, then I think of if we're in an environment that's disconnecting, we can't give our best performance. And I think of so many people, I mean, you may have listeners who are not in leadership positions and um, they, it's important for them to understand that the environment they're in, the relational culture they're in is either helping them advance their careers or it's working against them. If it's a culture that's connecting, it's bringing out their best performance. They will have more energy, more enthusiasm. They'll make better decisions. They'll be more creative. They'll be more adaptable to deal with change. And so um, their leaders are going to see them as very effective individuals. And the culture is helping bring out their best performance. However, if they're in a culture that's disconnecting, Alex, they're going to be less energetic. They're not going to be as sharp thinking because of the culture will do that. And there's a risk that managers and others in the organization will brand them as poor performers 
when in reality, that's not true. It's the culture that is a drag on their performance. And so it's important for young people, especially, and really all of us, to make sure we're intentional about getting into a culture that's gonna bring out our best because getting into a culture that holds us back because it's disconnecting, it's over-controlling, or it's just indifferent to people, that's gonna harm our career opportunities too. I, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a step further and look, you feel free to pull me from the brink if you don't agree with me or you think I'm wrong. Um, I would say not only is it important to put yourself in those types of cultures, I would also say that it's important to, to lead the charge to create that type of culture. Um, you know, taking the skills that you can learn through um, Mike's book, taking the skills you can learn through my, my uh, strategic networking training, you can take those skills and impact the culture around you, teach others how to be effective connectors and how to have these relationships so that there's better culture within the office and people, everyone can work and um, perform at their, their highest ability. Um, I was actually, uh, again, this is somewhat off topic, but you know, I, I did a panel discussion a few years back and I was asked about, um, I think it was glassdoor.com or something like that. And they, they said, uh, it was a panel on diversity, so it's a little tangent, but um, they said, okay, so what do you do if the organization isn't you know, high level, um, I didn't have high numbers on um, diversity inclusion, um, Glassdoor. And you know, two of my panel members um, said, well, I just wouldn't go there. You know, if, if I'm not gonna be accepted, I'm not gonna go there. You know? And I get myself in a lot of trouble for my answers. Like, okay, and what? Um, I, I think there's always going to need to be that trailblazer. Not everyone has the energy to mm -hmm. be the trailblazer, to, to be a trailblazer. But if someone doesn't come in to and work to shift the culture, the culture will always remain. And the culture is. Um, and the cultures just don't change on their own. There has to be um, some sort of impact, influx, um, someone pushing to make something happen. Otherwise, the status quo will always remain the status quo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's true. And you know, just to add to what you're saying, Alex, is so true. A lot of people ask me, doesn't culture change have to start from the top? And yes, it's great if you know, you're Admiral Vern Clark and you're the chief of the U.S. Navy, you're the CNO, the chief of uh, naval operations. However, what, what we have seen after doing this almost 20 years is culture change often happens in, uh, at the front line or, or really in, in small groups and that every organization has a variety of cultures. It has cultures of control, cultures of connection, cultures of indifference. And the challenge is for senior leadership to develop more cultures of connection. But the good news for someone who isn't at the top of the organization, has less power, is the local culture you're in, the interactions you have with people that you work with day in and day out, that's the culture that has the biggest impact on you. And it's also the culture that you have the most influence in. So culture change doesn't have to start at the top. In fact, I've seen organizations where it started way out in, you know, I think one organization based in New York, where uh, culture change actually started in New Zealand. <laughs> and they had a phenomenal leader. Uh, the new CEO came in and recognized that and made the leader of the New Zealand business, the uh, vice chairman of the organization to mentor other leaders to help them create better work cultures. And so 
Um, there really is good news that we can have an influence on our local culture, our team, our department that we work in. It doesn't have to start at the top. You, you do work with government as well, correct? Mm-hmm. So um, my question is, let's just, let's all bring, I, I love our conversation. I want to, and I want to bring it all back to where we started and where we are right now. Um, why is connection really important right now um, in the government workforce? If I can, if I can pose that question to you. Yeah, you know, those things we talked about earlier, just the, um, you know, in the current environment, uh, high stress, loneliness, social isolation, I think it's even more difficult for people who work in government because the current administration um, doesn't value people who work in government. You know, we see that oftentimes in just their comments. And so that makes it an especially difficult environment to work in if you don't feel valued. And one of the things that we talk about in our work is seven universal human needs to thrive at work. And I think of it this way, Alex, when you first join a team, they don't know you, but you expect them to respect you. And oftentimes in government work, you don't feel like you're respected. Even though I know so many talented, dedicated people who are inspiring for the amount of energy and contribution they make to our government. And I am so grateful for that. But if you don't feel you're respected, um, it has an impact on your performance. Second, after you're there longer and you've had a chance to show what you do, uh, you know, the quality of your work, if you're not recognized for that, appreciated, then you also start to wonder, is anybody, you start to get a little insecure, you know, do people see that I'm doing good work? But if you get that, then you're there longer. You start to develop friendships, people whose back you have and who have your back. That gives you an additional sense of connection and security so that you feel safer and you can take on more risk and stress and stretch, stretch more to do more. And then uh, the next need is autonomy. We can't be in an environment that is too, we have a micromanaging boss <laughs> or there's too much, you laugh, uh, or there's too much bureaucracy. Those things hold us back. If we have enough autonomy and we're in the next need is personal growth. We're in a role that's a good fit with our strengths. It's not too challenging so that we're stressed out, not under challenging so that we're bored, but it's in that sweet spot of challenge where we feel a sense of connection to our work and the hours fly by. That's good too, that makes us feel connected. And then the next need is meaning that we see our work is making a contribution in some way. And then finally, progress. So those seven needs uh, help us feel connected. And when we do, we thrive and our organizations thrive. You know, um, I, <laughs> you're, you're so right on so many levels. And, you know, for any government employee who's listening right now, I. I I just want you to know that both Mike and myself, um, we hear you, we understand what you're going through. We, it's I, I, I do feel like uh, government employees uh, tend to be a uh, tend to be a um, a con, um, a lot of the time. Whether regardless of administration, I think we uh, federal employees can be a, a pawn to, to to be moved as necessary. And I think I think. Unfortunately, I think the media um, and the society has not done a good job of helping to create a, a better picture of the hard work that government employees do um, all the time, every single day for generally less pay than what their private sector counterpart would be compensated at. Um, and you know, the, the, the challenge that I run into as I start, as I work with 
government uh, employees and helping them um, secure promotions, gain influence, you know, strategic networking, political savvy. The, the challenge I always run into is they believe there's a dichotomy. They believe that either they can be really dedicated and passionate towards the mission and know they're adding value that way, or they can network, or they can um, uh, focus on their career progression. And what I'm always working to teach them is that there doesn't have to be an either or. You can do both. You should, you should be passionate about one thing while at the same time achieving the goals that you and your family may have. Um, you know, not having to live paycheck to paycheck, you know, um, you know, not having to be in a job forever just because you know everyone else around you is getting promoted because they have the right connections, the right relationships, so on and so forth. But you don't want to do it because you don't want, you want to be true to the vision of the, the mission of the organization. Um, I know it's kind of put a lot out there, but do, do you have any comments? I mean, you don't have to, but do you have any comments on that at all? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's, you look at, um, as, you, as we get older, I think we look back and see that there are things we could have done that we didn't do when we were younger. And one way to really maximize your career progress and just your enjoyment in life is find mentors who are older, who are more experienced, who will um, take the time to help you think through and maybe see blind spots that you don't see or things that you're just as, as you described, Alex things you're not doing that you could be doing that would help you advance your career. So I think there's, there's absolute wisdom in what you just said. And one way young people in particular can make sure that they are optimizing, maximizing their career is, you know, learning all the time through like, the training that you offer um, and, and getting mentors as well. Those two things, I, you know, I think one of my business partners was a world-class um, he was an all-American middle linebacker and captain of the Brown University football team and a world-class discus thrower. And he said one time, you know, Mike, people don't get to that world-class athlete status without coaches. It's just impossible. And usually it's coaches. It's not just one coach. And, you know, leadership is, is complex in a lot of ways because people are complex. And so why would we think leaders could ever perform at their very best without coaching and mentors? That is so true. And I've been so blessed and grateful to have mentors throughout my career and who've helped me in my career and in my life. So I would encourage young people listening to this in particular to, um, you know, engage in improving yourself all the time and continuous learning through, you know, like the things that you offer, Alex. And um, also be sure to get mentors because that makes a big difference too. So I, I'm going um, to give you a, a few minutes if, to say any last comments you may have, Mike, but I just want to, I want to, and maybe you can add this into your last comments. I want to underscore um, what you said right at the beginning of this conversation. Um, connections, yes, it will help you in your career. It will help you get promotions. It will help you ultimately make more money and be, you know, all, the, all those good things. So those are important things that, I, that we want to focus on but there's a health component to it as well. Mm -hmm. And I want, I want to make sure if you can just underscore again, why connections are so important to your health. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll, I'll turn it back over to you, Mike. Yeah, Alex. So our, to help people understand this, when uh, our bodies are, it's baked into our nervous system so that we feel safe when we have people we trust around us who have our back. 
And when things are changing and become threatening, then our body shifts to a state called stress response. And one of the things it does is it overallocates blood glucose, which is a form of sugar and oxygen to the fight or flight muscles, the heart, the lungs, and like the thighs. It's preparing us to, to run or fight. And um, it takes those resources from other body systems, parts of the brain, the digestive system, the immune system, and the reproductive system are shortchanged. Now, if we're in a state of, if it's a short-term stressor, like we're being attacked, then it's good we're in stress response because it'll help us survive. But what's happening today is that people, because of these factors we're talking about, they're in a state called chronic or ongoing stress response. When those bodily systems are under-resourced, it affects, it affects your health. It affects how you feel. When people don't feel well, they often turn to addictive behaviors or substances to try to manipulate their moods. And it will shave years off your life if you're stuck in chronic stress response. So having those connections, it protects us from stress. It even, you know, research shows those connections help release an enzyme that repairs damage done to the ends of our chromosomes from stress. The enzyme's called telomerase. So it's fascinating to see, but connection without a doubt is one of the most important things we can do during times of stress and through other times in our life because it just helps us make the best decisions. It, uh, we have better emotional health. We're more resilient. Uh, we make, um, we uh, just perform every way better when we're connected. So it's a really important, it's something I didn't value as much when I was younger in life. And I started developing addictions because I didn't feel well, but I, I was around people, Alex, but I didn't know I was lonely because I didn't have that depth of relationship with people. It was all acquaintances rather than really deeper connections. And I needed that, mm -hmm. but now I know better. Well, again, Mike, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Um, again, everyone who's listening, um, you have to run out and get um, uh, connection culture. Do it today. Don't wait till tomorrow. If anyone knows me and what I teach, I teach, I teach action, immediacy. If you want to do something, you want to better yourself, don't wait till tomorrow because you'll talk yourself out of it. Don't wait till next week because you'll definitely talk yourself out of it. Do it right now. Um, again, I, can, uh, I am here if you need me. I'm sure um, Mike is happy to chat with you if, if, if you're interested to chat with him a little more about um, the services he offers and the books that he has. Um, again, thank you so much, Mike. I appreciate your time today. I know we all appreciate your time today. Um, and as I, as I always tell everyone who's uh, involved in the, my programs and my teachings, uh, you know, just remember, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving. Thanks, Alex. See you, Mike. Thanks for listening. Find us online at thealextrembleshow.com and be sure to share what you've learned with at least one other person today. Check back on the first and third Wednesday of each month for new episodes. Until next time, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving.